Father in heaven, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for the many blessings that we have through Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be helping us this morning to understand your word through the work and the grace of the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes so that we might behold what is there, we might apply it correctly, and he might give us the strength to do these things. We ask especially for Charlie that you would strengthen his body, you would help his mind to stay sharp that he might be able to continue to love his wife well and to be a faithful father to Charlie. Uh, we pray that you'd strengthen him, Lord, and that you'd keep using Laura and Charlie Jr. as uh, gracious servants and kind ministers to uh, a special man in their life. Lord, again, we pray for this morning that uh, you might be kind to us. We, we pray as well for uh, the later service where James will be preaching. Uh, father, we recognize that on a given Sunday there are numbers of people with spiritual struggles and sins, as well as those who are unbelievers. And so we pray that there might be much grace this morning, that you would call people uh, to follow Christ, to uh, lift uh, their hearts to trust in the King of Kings, that they might be saved from their sin and follow him all their days. Uh, Lord, again, we pray that you'd glorify your word in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to jump in to Revelation chapter 20. If you don't have the notes... I'm on page 17. That last kind of era that we're going to talk about is the millennial reign of Christ. Okay. Does anyone know what the word millennium means? It, may, it actually means a thousand years. So milli, like millimeter, means thousand. Annum is year. So millennium, it's a thousand years. Okay, so you come to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Jesus Christ has just come back in chapter 19. We would call that the Battle of Armageddon. And you see at the end of chapter 19. And if we're just kind of tracing through the flow of history that Revelation has for us, of course, it's future history. We come to chapter 20. Christ has conquered Satan and all of the forces of the Antichrist. For, uh, chapter 20, verse 1 says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand... The key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Let me just... Uh, press upon you. This is one of the reasons I think post-millennial and amillennialism <clears throat> have fatal flaws in them. Is if you look in this in this section of scripture, where is Satan? He's he's sealed where? Yes, in this in this bottomless pit, this this prison. Fulake is the Greek word there. Um, he he's bound. He's chained. He's locked away and he can no longer do the work of deceiving the nations. Now, both as you read the rest of the New Testament, that says Satan is walking around like a roaring lion trying to devour people. He is currently at work in the sons of disobedience, right? This is what the scriptures say. Not only that, anecdotally, how deceived are the nations? And you look in this text, and you see that Satan, during this millennial kingdom, is bound away, cannot deceive the nations, and there is a time limit on that prison, right? He's locked away for a thousand years. It's not as though the thousand years, Satan somehow has 
uh, you know, chewed a lockpick out of his fingernails and breaks the lock. It's that God has locked him away for a limited time. And then in verse 4, you'll see the continuing description of that, that era where Satan is bound. Thrones seated on them were those who, to whom authority to judge was committed. Now, having gone through Matthew, we know at least some of the individuals on those thrones. Who are they? Matthew 19, 28 tells us, where will the apostles be? Seated on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so there's authority to judge. Uh, those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. So there's, the martyrs especially are given places of prominence in Jesus' kingdom. Those who had not worshipped the beast in its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Now, there are people who struggle with the idea that there are multiple resurrections, but we've already experienced one, haven't we? Right? We celebrate it every resurrection Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. He's the first fruits. And after him will be other second fruits and third fruits, apparently. Well, this is the uh, first resurrection of the saints, but there's a second resurrection coming. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such a one, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The text is not complex there. So what you'll find is that most people who who have an alternate view of kingdom theology, don't deal with this text very well. They deal with all the other texts and tell us this text can't be what it says. And so I'm just going to simply lay that text in front of you as the template for what we think of as we think of the millennial kingdom. I'd suggest to you that Isaiah 65 also helps us. I think Isaiah 65 looks at uh, the uh, reconstitution of Israel and blends both the eternal state and the kingdom in a singular passage where it's looking at this future kingdom hope. But interestingly, in Isaiah 65, you have a young child die, and people mourn for him. How young is the young child who dies in Isaiah 65? Does anyone know? He's 100 years old. Now, if, if you were to stand by the graveside of a loved one who is 100 years old, none of you would be thinking he was just a baby. His life got snuffed out before it even began. Most of us, in fact, you'd hear a lot of people saying, well, he lived, he lived a good long life. It was his time to go. You know, you'd be, you'd be, you better say it quite so roughly, but you'd be thinking thoughts like that, right? Like, wow, that was, you know, 100 years. Most of us don't get that long. And, and in fact, they're mourning for him like a young child. So, so you have death in Isaiah 65 in this reconstituted kingdom, which means it's not the eternal state. At least not what he's talking about particularly there. But he is talking about a time where there's extended lifespans and sin. I think that's where we also get, like, you know, in Isaiah 9, where Jesus, I think we still have it on the back, a child is given, the government will be on his shoulders. So when Jesus Christ is reigning as the regent of his kingdom, there's still injustice because he's governing against it, if you read that text. Right? He's deciding for the poor. I don't think the Bible ever talks about the poor in the eternal state. And, and so there's things consistent with the Old Testament hope of Israel 
that seem inconsistent with eternity but consistent with a thousand-year reign of Christ over which there is still sin, even though who's bound? Satan is bound, but we still have sin natures. Verse 7, thousand years are ended. Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over broad plain of the earth and surrounded uh, the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the end of that thousand-year reign ends with this uh, final kind of cosmic battle in which Satan is quickly able to bring an army. Now, how can he quickly bring an army against God's people? Who's on the throne? Jesus. So this is an insurrection against the king and his capital city. How does Satan get this battle going so fast? People still have a sin nature. Well, maybe we would say this. They might capitulate to his rule, but they are not regenerate. Right? Like, like if Jesus is king and he's governing, just like in our country, we would maybe submit to a lot of law enforcement um, pressure and authority without necessarily appreciating or agreeing with what's going on. Right? And you can see that in Jesus' kingdom, too. And so you have this kingdom in which righteousness is the general rule. I think this is probably the right place where you see Ezekiel talking about a scroll flying through the air, where it seems to execute God's law almost immediately and perfectly, that you would have almost no civil disobedience that has any type of allowance. And Jesus Christ as king is executing the law perfectly and flawlessly so that <coughs> you still might have unbelievers but they're living in conformity to the king's will, but the rebel's on the inside, and Satan is quickly able to get them to turn against the king of kings. All right, we're going to jump over to page 19, partly for sake of time. You guys can read through the notes. Hopefully it will be helpful to you. You can see a lot of the <coughs> scripture texts. I want to talk about the covenants in the Old Testament, and I, I'm really not going to spend time on the Noahic covenant other than to say it's a universal covenant made with, interestingly enough, not just Noah, who's, who's party to the covenant? So I put the scripture text in this covenantal section uh, so that you guys could see it, but page 20. I don't know what page you held up. I couldn't read the little number at the bottom, but uh, I'm looking at page 20. So look at verse 12. God, God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every what? Every living creature. So this is not just Noah's covenant. This is a covenant made with all living beings that has breath in them. So apparently this would even include the animals. God has covenanted with all of these beings. What is the sign of the covenant? The rainbow? I didn't include it in here. I have a paragraph where uh, Hebrew scholars point out that this is the word for his weapon. Like, this is not like just a bent thing, like a bow. This is a battle weapon that he retires in the sight of all of humanity. And every time we see uh, clouds of rain and we see the rainbow, we're seeing God's battle bow 
that's been retired. He'll no longer use rain as a weapon of war against all creation. All right, page 21. Um, this is the Abrahamic covenant. And again, I, I'm intentionally going fast over the Noahic one because there's little debate and little concern over that. The Abrahamic uh, covenant, I put Genesis 15 first because it's kind of the primary central covenantal text. And then you look in Genesis 13 as well as like you'd see other reiterations like in Genesis 22 and Genesis 17. The sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And... I think that was 175, if you're wondering about how old he was. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. as those pieces of animals that um, verses 1 through 11 God had stipulated uh, would represent uh, the, the duties to keep the covenant or likewise would happen to the covenant failing party. Um, verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So, God gives them this land. And if you look in uh, chapter 13, look in verse 15. So you see that just down in that text below. I will give you and your offspring forever all the land. Okay, so how long? Well, well let's just start with this. Who are the parties of the covenant? It's Abe and God. Now, offspring are recipients of the promise, but, it, but it's like a contract. If someone contracts with me, uh, to do something that is good for me and good for my children, the covenant is made to me, not my children, even though they're included in the verbiage of the covenant. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, but maybe you think like a life insurance policy is a contract that I have with my life insurance company, but the beneficiaries are not part of that. My children have never signed a life insurance policy, but they're beneficiaries of mine. So they're beneficiaries that are not, uh, are not party to the covenant, if that makes sense. Uh, so what, what is promised to Abram as part of this covenant? <laughs> okay, it's in the notes, so this was, I was not trying to be tricky. Okay, first, let's just start with this. Offspring. How many Offspring. I think the ESV says like the dust of the earth, it can't be counted. You're going to have lots and lots and lots of children. And I, I think we are bound by the narrative to take this very literally. Because what does Abram do? He's not having a kid, he's not having a kid, he's not having a kid. And finally, he's like, you know what? I can make this thing work. And how does he do that? He sleeps with his wife's handmaid. God says, no, I meant this literally. Your wife and you are going to have offspring. 
And so we have Isaac, right? And he is the child of promise. All right, so there's going to be this multitude of offspring uh, from which kings and nations will rise. Kind of a cool statement that he has right there, right? I will make nations and kings come, come from you in Genesis 17. How long will uh, his offspring possess the land? For how long? Okay, so let me ask you. Has God kept this promise yet? No. Right? Now, I'm not saying God's not going to keep his promise, but has he kept it? Does Israel own from the Euphrates to the Nile? The Euphrates goes fairly close to Baghdad. Right? So like, if you're thinking of land, the Great River Egypt, which I assume is the Nile, does Israel own from Nile, like from Cairo to Baghdad, does Israel own it? No. And they will own it for how long? Forever. So this is a promise that is yet to be fulfilled. Does that make sense? All right. Are there any questions on the Abrahamic covenant? Well, I'm sorry? No, so, so if, you're, if we're trying to bring together the millennium, I think Isaiah 65 actually shows us how the Bible would view the millennium. And that is the millennium with Jesus Christ on the throne is, is the beginning of the fulfillment of these promises. You have that insurrection. Jesus seems to squash it very fast. And then that then is extended into the eternal state. So I think actually the millennium gives us a really good idea about what heaven will be like. That is, heaven will be very much like this earth, except without the sin nature and without Satan, with a fully renovated world, we have a kingdom situation in which we will live with no sin forever in, in a world with nations, Genesis 21 and 22 both say, with economies, with invention, with labor. You know, so we're not all just sitting on cloud couches, playing harps with diapers. Like, that's not the picture that heaven is. When you, when you look at the Old Testament hope of a kingdom, that's, that's the prophetic word that you have through the scriptures looking forward to fulfillment. James, did you have a question? Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, I don't have the text on the tip of my tongue, but I would say two things. First, those are promises made to Israel, not Abraham. So you've jumped ahead of us a little bit. We're not in the Abrahamic covenant in that passage. We're, we're more in Mosaic covenant. Um, number two, I think it's Joshua 6 or 7 where, where it, it indicts Israel as not being obedient. So when you look at those promises, God promises to destroy the enemies as they pursue God's will. And they stop short. So God is not the one that's on account for Israel not actually defeating all the enemies. And they don't defeat all the enemies. Joshua is really clear about that in the text. Um, but it's, I think Joshua is making clear God is not the one who's fallen short. 
but they possessed all the land that God had promised he would defeat the enemies in. So they, they don't actually, at that point in my understanding, own all the land. They haven't dispossessed the Philistines, which they should have. And you'll see that in the rest of Judges, particularly the Philistines are a constant thorn in their side, all the way up through the reign of David. But the failure is not God's. He kept his promises. right? And, and part of the promise, it's really interesting how God says it, but he, he basically says he'll drive them out in front of you, and then he tells them, I'm not going to do this before you go there, otherwise the land will go fallow and get ruined. So as you, as you advance the armies, I will drive them out so that the land is never left desolate or ruined. It's always being cultivated. It's a, it's a really sweet kindness of God. But they're just, they quit. They're tired of battle and they stop. Yes, Matthew. Yes. Yeah, so I'm just trying to think of how best to answer this question. So you would have to take Second Peter as the earth will melt with a fervent heat as a total destruction renewal. I think that's an inconsistent understanding of redemption. I think just like you will have a glorified body. What's the template of your glorified body? Your current body? Will it be a new body? Will you still be Matthew? I think that's what we should be thinking about new heaven, new earth that it is going to be a glorified, renovated, new heaven, new earth. It won't be entirely different, so that just as much as your Matthew in eternity, that will still be this earth in eternity. How exactly and where exactly that has that identity, it's probably somewhat mysterious, but you'll be glorified. I think this earth will be glorified too. Right, so you're asking a question that I think is answered for us in Genesis, if we go with parallels here. In Genesis, after the flood, Noah gets out of the ark, and he immediately identifies one of the rivers as the identical river by name that was in Eden. Now, what are the chances after cosmic, like, uh, not, not cosmic, the, the um, earth plates tectonic is what I'm thinking of, tectonic plates move, the earth is covered in a flood. The whole world has this massive deluge that just reshapes the map. And he gets out and he's like, that's the river. What are the chances that that's the same river? It seems, it seems unlikely, right? But I, I, I think in some ways God allows there to be continuity between those two things that, that would suggest we can safely say He's fulfilling his promise. He's giving Israel this land. I don't know what that looks like. But I don't, I don't, I think those are legitimate struggles to have. I'm not trying to minimize that. I just think on those ones, we've seen it in the past, where the consistency of naming from Noah to the Eden River is probably where we're going to see analogy and parallels where it's the same thing. Yes, David.
Well, I'm, I'm just, Jeremy asked me this week, he goes, are you going to finish in two or three weeks? I said three. <laughs> Questions like that make me realize that you're going to make a liar out of me, David. Um, okay, so I think a couple things are happening first. <clears throat> the argument of Galatians is making a point that Jewish people are not saved merely because they're Jewish. And in contrast to that, he says, what makes someone, at least in this case, a particular beneficiary of the sweetness of the promises given to Abraham is not merely genetics, okay? That, that in this case, child of blessing here is someone who shares with Abraham in a faith like Abraham, and in that way is analogous to an offspring. I don't think his point is to say that we were never talking about genetic offspring in the Old Testament. Again, otherwise, Abraham would not have had to have a different genetic child. Okay, But I think what you have here is that Israel has mistakenly thought it's only genetics. It's merely physical descent that matters. I think you see really clearly in the rest of the Old Testament, Romans 9 making that same point. Not all Israel was really Israel, were they? Who is, who, is, who is the true recipient of God's blessing in the Old Testament? It's the remnant, believing Israel, right? So when you come to Galatians and he's, he's pulling out that point, he's emphasizing, he's doing that to, to push against the Judaizers who are saying that in order to receive the blessings, you have to do the law. He's like, no, even in the Old Testament, faith was necessary to be grafted into the promises of Abraham. And likewise, today, to be true, truly recipient of these blessings, what's necessary is not merely outward conformity. What's necessary, particularly for Galatians and for the Gentiles, is not, not outward conformity at all, but the work of the Spirit and faith and regeneration. So I'd say he's using offspring in a, um, to, to make that analogy, but he's not trying to say that in so doing we've displaced the genetic offspring of Abraham. Is using it in a different manner. Does that help you at all? Mm-hmm. Right, because you share, in this sense, you share his DNA of faith. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. Roman. <laughs> it's... it's as long as you can say, by faith. <laughs> it has been one of those songs where it's always kind of awkward, right? Because we're, I mean, it's the same thing with Galatians. We want to be careful that we don't suggest that somehow God has permanently removed the nation of Israel from his plan. Romans 11 makes it really clear that they're going to be grafted back in again, right? And so having, having total removal of um, Israel from God's plan is unbiblical. So, yes, we should sing Father Abraham. We should do that now. Make all you adults sing it. All right. So the Abrahamic covenant, I would also add to, I'd also add to, to James' question, this is a forever possession. So even if, even if we were to grant for Joshua's, uh, was it Joshua 26, 21? Doesn't have, is that 26 chapters? I think it's 24. Um, that that it, they didn't own it forever, and so it remains unfulfilled for that reason alone, if, if some of that, my other concerns weren't, weren't part of the answer. 
All right, so covenant conditions. I think God makes it really clear there are no conditions. So again, think contract language. A lot of times there's stipulations. You know, just think you hire a contractor to come in and dig you a pool. And he says, hey, you know, give me $500. I'll start the pool on Monday. He never comes. He never comes. He never comes. Any of you going to pay the whole price of the pool? Because the stipulation was you build a pool, I pay you. On the other hand, if he builds the pool, he's fulfilled his duty, what should you do? Pay him. So, so when we have Abraham, it's actually Abram at this point, falling into a deep sleep, he says nothing, he does nothing, he's literally unconscious in the sense, uh, I shouldn't say unconscious, he's unmoving in a deep sleep. And God makes these promises to him. God's making a really clear point. You're not signing a contract that includes you doing anything. You're literally not even talking. You're on the ground prone. Uh, really clearly indicating that Abraham's promises are going to be fulfilled without regard to Abraham or his descendants' obedience. Okay, Mosaic or the Palestinian covenant. I would probably put here and Palestinian covenant. Uh, just going through this, I think Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29 makes them separate covenants. I, again, I don't want to spend uh, a ton of time on this because I think... This is not where the challenges lie. But in Exodus 19, Moses um, went up. Uh, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people Israel. So right there you have the parties, don't you? Who are the parties? Yeah, the house of Jacob, the people of Israel, it's the same thing. And whom? Who's the other side of that agreement? Right? God, the Lord. Verse 4. You, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the peoples of Israel. All right. So who are the covenant parties? Israel and God. Um, this is a suzerain vassal treaty, think king and subject. So this is what Eugene Merrill says um, in that quote there. It was customary for parties to a covenant or a treaty in the ancient Near Eastern world to celebrate their newly established relationship by sharing in a common meal. Uh, that should be Exodus. 24 describes this very, uh, I think it's supposed to be thought, I did not edit this well. Making clear the idea that the Lord and Israel now linked in a partnership of mutual obligation that would forever alter the course of human history. First, Moses, Aaron, and his sons, and the 70 um, elders, all representing the people as a whole, were invited to meet God at the sacred mountain. Through only, uh, though only Moses was permitted to ascend to its top, Moses then returned to the people with the revelation of the covenant terms, and then he read them out. The people gladly assent to keep them, to symbolize the mutual pledge of the Lord and the people. Moses erected an altar surrounded by 12 stone pillars, the altar representing the Lord, and the pillars represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The priests then offered the fellowship offerings, sacrifices appropriate to the occasion of bringing contracting parties together into a common bond. Um, by the way, I will go through and edit that if any of you want a clean copy. There's a lot of typos in that one. Um, the sprinkling... Um, of the altar of the Lord and the stones portray the binding nature of the relationship that was being affected. All right. So I, I think what's interesting there, I thought was cool that Merrill points out, is these 12 stones represent the people of Israel. So again, who's, who's the covenant with? 
This is one of the reasons I think we really need to have a strong distinction between Old Testament law and us. Because I'm not party to this covenant. I'm not represented in any way in the Mosaic Covenant. Who's, who's, who's there in that covenant? Israel, represented by Moses and the elders, the 12 columns. And who, who is God covenanting with? It's those people. It's really clear, both in language and in symbolism, it's Israel. Right, this is, I think, a really clear challenge that you have in the New Testament then. What is the Gentile relationship to the Mosaic Covenant? So you get this, for instance, in Acts 15. What does a Gentile do to have to be part of the people of God? Stay away from idolatry. Don't eat things strangled. Right? I mean, it's, it's really, they set aside the whole law as an obligation upon uh, this new group of people called the church. Um, I, I think Exodus 19, you have the stipulations, um, so we'll go ahead and point those out. Obey my voice and keep my covenant. You'll be my treasured possession. So God's promises include blessings for obedience, prosperity over enemies. Ultimately includes regeneration in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. That'd be part of that Palestinian covenant, which comes at the end of Deuteronomy. Um, so, I, again, I think those are probably two separate covenants, although they're closely related. Covenant conditions. Both parties, God and Israel, bind themselves with oaths of loyalty. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Israel is bound to God to keep his statutes and rules. If a person does them, he will live by them. Israel was required to be loyal to God by obeying the law and were required to keep certain signs like circumcision. Um, that was a holdover from Abraham's covenant as well as to keep the Sabbath. That's in Exodus 31. All right, so... Circumcision, I think it's one of the reasons you don't have it repeated in the New Testament. Circumcision is a sign of, of the covenant that God had with Abraham. The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant God makes with Moses and Israel uh, on Sinai. Those are both covenantal indicators. And I think they, they show us, in some ways, partnership with the, covenant, the, the original covenant, covenant parties. Okay, so covenant conditions, uh, obedience to the law. How did Israel do? <laughs> Not well. Yeah. Um, I, I think ultimately, though, if you'll see under the covenant promises, Jesus ultimately fulfills these, right? Matthew 5. Nothing will pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. I think Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. In fact, Galatians 3 says that the law was a guardian, shepherding God's people until the true one comes, Jesus you know, so I, I think there's some evangelistic um, ministries that will use the idea that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That's a misrepresentation of that text, although the law does help us see our need of Christ. But the law was not a schoolmaster to teach us how much we need Christ in Galatians. The point of Galatians is the law was, was kind of our, our nanny until our mom came home. Or in this case, maybe I should say, um, I don't know, what's, what's the male version of a nanny? A steward, right? They, they governed, governed us until Christ comes to govern us. Uh, that's the point of Galatians. And so the law, the law passes away as a binding enforcer 
now we have Christ himself as both the, the law as an expression of it as well as the, the enforcer of it. Um, Davidic covenant. I think this is also a significant covenant in terms of the promises. 2 Samuel 7, David has collected all of the temple building materials. He's contracted with Hiram, king of Tyre. He's brought in all this lumber, the cedar. He, he's started to prep all the money to build this temple for God. And God, God is honored and pleased with David. And so he, he, he states this covenant in 2 Samuel 7. So the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who, you shall, come, uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. But I put away before you, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever, and your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so the covenant parties here are whom? Nathan says this to David. I think you find it in some ways repeated to Solomon when he asked the Lord for wisdom rather than wealth or, or military success. So David and God, uh, there are provisions in this that would include offspring. For instance, I will be a father to your son. Here are the promises. I will raise your offspring and I will establish your kingdom. Your house will be made sure for how long? For forever. And we know that this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the son of David. Matthew makes that really clear. My love will not depart from David's son. Um, then we look at the, that third bullet point there. Your kingdom will be made sure forever. This is first to the nation of Israel. The 12 tribes that are given, um, they're also given an appointed place. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them there. Okay, so this is all part of the Davidic covenant. Right? Like, I'm going to have, I'm going to bless you, David. I'm going to be a father to your son forever. Um, you'll, you'll have your throne established forever, and I will plant your people in the land. David's uh, offering, uh, there should be offspring there. David's offspring will exercise authority as rulers over this kingdom. Your throne will be established forever. These promises have yet to be fulfilled. They're not being fulfilled by Christ's current session at God's right hand as he rules with his father, since that throne was established 
before David's rule. Limitations 5.19, I think Psalm 45, Psalm 93, talk about God's eternal throne. So that could not possibly be David's throne. Um, it's, it's speaking of the throne of heaven. Well, Luke 1.30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see a really clear echo of the Davidic promises there, don't you? You know, the, the, the son of David who will reign over the people of Jacob, the house of Jacob, that's a, almost an exact quotation from 2 Samuel 7, and his kingdom will be forever. Okay, so we have son of David, a literal fulfillment there, promised over the people of Israel in an eternal reign. And I just put it there in Lamentations 5, your, your throne, O Lord, is, or excuse me, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. As a contrasting point, when did David's throne begin? could date it somewhere around 1040, right? Like, before David was born, did David have a throne? No, I mean, perhaps you could extend it all the way to the beginning of the nation with Sinai and the covenant with Moses that ultimately promised in Deuteronomy 17 that there would be a king, and David ultimately is that king of Israel. But I think you would have to say David's king and kingdom and place have a pointing uh, a starting point in time and history and a place, Israel, namely the capital of Jerusalem, which David took over and conquered. Okay? So God's throne in heaven existed prior to David's throne. It's a different realm. It's in heaven and over the, all of cosmos. Israel is a, a subset of that. Um, all right, so covenant conditions. God gives David no conditions for fulfillment. Therefore, this covenant is an unconditional covenant. Right, God is going to do it. It's going to happen. No doubt about it. All right, we need to end, and we'll do New Covenant next week. And so I'll, I'll, I'll rework those notes for you so they're a little cleaner. Any questions on the Davidic Covenant? Yes, Ricky. Is this for it? So I think when you get like an all-millennial view, they would say something like, we believe the kingdom is inaugurated now. And so, so they would see some of the kingdom promises being fulfilled in Jesus' reign at the right hand of God. Is Jesus ruling right now, Ricky? And, and I would agree with you. Yes, he is. Is he ruling on David's throne? I would say no, he's not. An all-millennialist would end up saying something like that this is a better, bigger reign and this kind of subsumes that prophecy and promise in a better answer or something along those lines. Um, and so they would see the promises given to David as being fulfilled in Christ currently even in a spiritual reign over God's people. And we would say maybe the church being Israel would be part of that answer for a covenantalist, that we are the people of God today, therefore this is a fulfillment of that. So you can understand why I'm, I'm building the tension here, right? 
What's the, what, what would be my problem pushing back on that? Yeah, I, I'm not the house of Israel. I'm not the house of Jacob. That's not me. David, in his wildest dream, would never have thought of a converted Gentile nation or, or um, group of people, a mixed group of people, namely the church, as being a legitimate answer to what God was promising him. And so I think we've got to do violence to the Old Testament text to get to a covenantal position. I mean, this, this is what, what MacArthur ultimately says in his sermon where he says um, that every self-respecting Calvinist should be a premillennialist. And he's right. If you believe in the sovereignty of God and he promises Israel this, either God didn't know what he was talking about or he couldn't guarantee the future. And that's, that's, that's his rhetorical point. He made a lot of people upset with him, but he's not wrong. I do think he doesn't give much room for a spiritual answer. I don't think there should be much room given, but he doesn't talk about that in his sermon. But that was, that was actually the first sermon I ever heard live of John MacArthur's. Listening to that sermon. I thought it was great. Um, godly people disagree, clearly. I mean, I'm not trying to say they're ungodly because they disagree with John MacArthur. Yes. I'm glad I just said godly people can disagree with John MacArthur. <laughs> Got that one in the nick of time. I, I actually think that's a fairly minority view that the earth would be totally annihilated. I mean, I think most people believe that God will redeem this earth, not discard it and build a new one. So I, th I think when we talk about a new heaven and a new earth, are you a new creature? If you're saved, you are. Are you a different creature? Yeah, so I, I think we need to be careful that we don't, we don't take and make everything in, in Scripture walk on every um, idea that we have. We need to make sure that we understand it contextually. Uh, we, we recognize, and that's, I, I think that, again, is one of the challenges good theology and good uh, Bible study has, is we let the context own us. We don't force our theology and context on the, on the Scripture. And so when you look, I would say generally in Scripture, the idea of something being irredeemable is not biblical. And so the idea that God has to say, this earth is so messed up, I can't fix it, doesn't seem to align with like Romans 8, where creation's groaning, waiting for the, the, the sons of God to be remade so it can be remade. Because what you would actually have to take that passage to mean is that earth is groaning in these labor pains waiting to be remade, and you don't mean remade, you mean destroyed. Right? Like, that, that seems inconsistent that creation's longing to be destroyed and remade. 
I think it's longing to be renewed would be maybe a more, more kind of English concept we would have for it. Um, any other questions? We've got to land this plane, so speak, speak now or wait for next week. Um, yeah, hopefully not six weeks from now. I'm going to try to do my best. I have two more weeks left. Uh, so next week we'll pick up talking about the new covenant, the new covenant promises. Um, you're welcome to talk to me about some of those questions you have later. Uh, these are challenging concepts. There's a reason there's a lot of books on these. There's a lot of disagreement on these things. Um, I would say the best way to come at Scripture is to take it at face value. God is not only the inventor of language, the master of it. And one of the things I think we, we, don't, we don't do a good job of understanding is that God is speaking to us in his word. He is not speaking in a heavenly language. He's speaking to us as humans in a way that's humanly apprehendable with the divine aid of the Spirit. And so I think there are sometimes where people are arguing for some type of um, special category of Scripture that makes it so that only people with a decoder ring of a PhD can understand it. And that's just nonsense. It does take work. It does take spiritual maturity, according to Hebrews, to understand the Scriptures. Uh, but you should be able to, to get in this and, and get it. So hopefully you'll do that over the course of the next couple of weeks. Uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for promises that secure our hope, knowing that they are anchored to a God who cannot lie, a God who will be faithful even when we are faithless. We thank you that in these promises, secured in real concrete language, we can know for certainty that Jesus Christ is coming back with glory and power, and we as his people will rule and reign with him forever. Thank you so much for the hope that we have in a Savior who has been killed for sins and raised to bring us justification so that we can know our hope is secure as your word and that is as secure as anything can be. In Jesus' name, amen.